This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 10th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In Kentucky this week, the state Supreme Court will hear a case with big implications for educational freedom. One key issue is the private money donated to scholarship-granting organizations for the purposes of giving parents robust school choice. Is that money public money? And if so, what are the implications for other kinds of donations made within the state? Akia McNeary is a parent seeking educational options for her own children in Kentucky. David Hodges is an attorney at the Institute for Justice. We spoke last month. Educational freedom, school choice legislation uh, has a long history in courts. And if you don't mind, just detail what, how has school choice performed uh, when subjected to court scrutiny? School choice has generally performed pretty well. Uh, it's been a long journey. Uh, about 30 years ago, the first educational choice program uh, was created. And after it was created, uh, it was off to court. Uh, in the very beginning, there were big questions about the First Amendment, uh, specifically the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Um, and these were the lofty questions about whether educational choice was constitutional uh, under the First Amendment. But over the past um, 30 years, there have been several Supreme Court cases. Uh, Zellman in 2002, Espinoza in 2020, and Carson in 2022 that have basically put those issues to bed. Um, during over the past 30 years, uh, there have also been these state constitutional issues. Um, and now that the main First Amendment ones have been put to bed, uh, we're seeing more and more of the state constitutional ones. But in general, um, school choice has a winning record in the courts. So uh, in a lot of these later cases at state courts, and of course, uh, I live in Kentucky, which is the subject of, uh, which is the home of a Supreme Court case that as of this recording is upcoming in Kentucky. A lot of the cases now seem to hinge on the uh, state constitutional provisions uh, that instruct lawmakers to set up a system of, at least in the Kentucky Constitution, common schools, a a general public school system. And uh, as your colleague Michael Bendis has said, uh, people who oppose school choice generally interpret this to mean that that's the only uh, provisions provision of schooling that the state can participate in. That's exactly right. That's what we're seeing in Kentucky. Um, you know, what you're referring to generally is uh, called a uniformity clause. And so when you have a uniformity clause in a state constitution, and these are things that are very common in state constitutions across the country, is it establishes a public school system. Um, our view and the view of basically every single court to consider this, every single state high court to consider this, is that it's just a baseline. It's not a ceiling. Once you say you must establish a public school system or a common school system, that's it. You just have to do that. And it opens up the door to other other alternatives, uh, other educational options. Um, and that's what we've seen. There's only been one case ever um, in 2006 in Florida, Bush v. Holmes, a very notorious decision in which the state Supreme Court uh, read their uniformity clause as not just imposing a floor, but also imposing a ceiling. And that decision um, was widely ridiculed at the time, and no state high court has ever adopted its reasoning. So uh, we're sort of, as of this recording, again, we are up against two Supreme Court hearings, one in West Virginia, one in Kentucky. And it feels like these cases are, in some sense, 
like the end, in a sense, of these school choice fights at state Supreme Courts? Is that, is that, do you feel that way? I wish I could say that I felt that way. (laughs) Um, You know, the thing is, is that ever since IG opened its doors 30 years ago, uh, there has not been a day when we have not been in court fighting an educational choice fight. Um, The other side is well-funded. They're they're determined, and they're going to uh, fight school choice programs uh, with everything that they have. It doesn't matter if the the argument is frivolous or not. Uh, Their view is that this is a threat to public schools and they want to fight it. And even if the even if the end result of this uh, is that they lose, at least they cast a cloud over the program. So at least any parents who are considering whether or not they should uh, enroll their children in a private school choice program, they might have second thoughts about it. And that also counts as a win for them. So I'd love to I'd love for them to just throw in the towel, but unfortunately I don't think that's going to happen. In full disclosure, Akia, you and I run in the same circles. Yes, we do. When it comes to uh, school choice, uh, what ha- was the experience of your four children in uh, schooling in Kentucky? Um, so I, I have four children, and they all have different experiences. My oldest son, he went to public school up until um, middle school. When he got to middle school. He was bullied very bad, and in my opinion, administration didn't handle it well. So I took a financial hardship choice and placed him into Heritage Christian Academy, which um, was a middle school Christian academy. Um, but for high school, he wanted to go back. He wanted to play sports, so he went back to the high school during high school. Then I have my um, middle son, Isaiah. He's been in public school since the beginning. Kindergarten, he's a junior now. He does very, very well in the public school setting. He loves the, the social to be social with his peers. He loves transferring classrooms. He likes being around people. So it works for him. Then I have my youngest son, my youngest son, Nehemiah. He is in seventh grade now, but he went to Zion Christian Academy for preschool and he transferred to public school during his kindergarten year. And he wasn't able to keep up with his studies. So I had to make another financial hardship choice and place him back into Zion Christian Academy. But they did offer me a partial scholarship for him to to go back, which was I was very grateful for. And then I have my youngest daughter, Monet. She is in kindergarten. Well, no, she's in first grade now, um, but she is kinesthetic learning. And I knew that our local public school did not specialize in kinesthetic learning. They only did visual and auditorial learning. And I knew that she wasn't going to be able to thrive in that area. So I just placed her at Zion Christian Academy as well. Right. So a wide variety of experiences for your children. They're different people, as all kids are. And what does... uh you know, the program at issue here in Kentucky is our education opportunity accounts. I believe the first in the country tax credit funded education savings account, if I have that correct. Uh, and uh, so you live in one of the counties that would uh, benefit from this. Your in- in household income would qualify you for this. What would it what does that mean? What would that mean for you? Um, that would mean that I would actually get help with my two youngest kids. Um private school and tuition. They will also help with their book fees. It will help with their tuition, book fees, and I think it's uniforms as well. And then also with my high school student, he'll be able to do the dual enrollment classrooms classes, which is a big deal. So that's, that's college credit that is. while you're in high school. Yeah. So you could avoid a semester of college if you want. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
So that's a big deal. And I I want to make sure that my kids are set up to have the best education possible because I know the education will get them where they want to be. Okay, David, back to you. How many cases are like this where the question that this entire case seems to hinge on is whether or not the money that is used, the money donated by these private sector entities to groups that then give money to parents to then uh, spend on educational programs and services for their kids. Uh, how, how many cases hinge on this idea that, well, that money is really public money, as the uh, other side of this case is arguing? So every single state high court to have considered this issue has not found that a tax credit is the equivalent of an appropriation. That is what the other side is arguing in this case, that when uh, you or I give a, uh, a donation to an account granting organization and we receive a tax credit in exchange, the other side is saying that's an appropriation. We're saying that's not an appropriation. And there has been no other uh, state high court to look at that set of facts and find that it's an appropriation. If they were, if the Kentucky Supreme Court were to find that this was an appropriation, it would threaten all manner of tax credits that people in Kentucky rely on. Um, You know, the argument is is risible. How relevant is the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in 2011 uh, relating to a very similar question uh, in Arizona. That is, I think Anthony Kennedy wrote the majority opinion, and he said, look, until the money enters the tax collector's hands, it's not public money. How much How much weight does that have? I think that holds a great deal of weight. Um, you know, in that decision, uh, it was also about a tax credit program, and, you know, it was partially about whether it counted as an appropriation, whether it was public money or not. And in that case, and when uh, another IJ case, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court looked at it and said, this is not this is not public money. This is private money. Um, And likewise, we think that when the Kentucky Supreme Court looks at this, they're going to find the same thing. And in fact, they don't even have to look at when they can look at uh, the Kentucky's uh, state constitution itself in 184. They're talking about money that is raised or collected. The money here is not being raised and it's not being collected. It's just going from a donor to an AGO, an account granting organization. That's private money. What do you think is going to happen here in Kentucky? I mean, we're speaking in Georgia, but in Kentucky, what do you think is going to happen? I have a great deal of faith in the Kentucky Supreme Court, and I also have a great deal of faith in our arguments. I think that when the Kentucky Supreme Court reviews uh, reviews the briefing, reviews the history, and here's our side as well as, uh, as, well as the government, uh, they're going to come to the conclusion um, that the law is on our side and that this program should be upheld. David Hodges is an attorney at the Institute for Justice. Akia McNeary is an Institute for Justice client from Kentucky seeking more education options for her children. We spoke last month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.